This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. Happy Halloween, everyone. This time of year is a personal favorite, thanks to my love of all things spooky, gothic, and strange. This season is more than that, though. This is when many cultures and communities come together to remember the loved ones they've lost and spend time both mourning and celebrating them. Holidays such as Dia de los Muertos, Samhain, and All Souls Day, among others, provide us the chance to find joy in grief. In this week's story, teller Avi Bowie shares their own family's experience with the loss of a pet and the sacred space for mourning they found together. Recorded live at Haymarket Pub and Brewery in Chicago in November 2022, Second Story is proud to present Mornabration. Mama, I hear my three-year-old's voice coming from the bathroom just down the hall as I'm waking up. It's half question, half proclamation. You're going to die? Yes, my wife states, adding quickly, but hopefully not for a very long time. And Papa will die too. Again, yes, my love. And I can hear the creeping ache in Sarah's voice as I sit up and quietly place my feet on the floor, listening intently. And you're both old, and I'm a kid, so you'll die before me. Once again, Sarah responds in the affirmative, this time with a little more levity, owing to Issei's astute observation of our relative advanced age. I hear the toilet flush. I take a deep breath. This moment's tenderness catches in the back of my throat and behind my eyes. A version of this overheard conversation has become a somewhat regular refrain in our home since the death of our most senior dog, Digby, last month. At the time, Sarah and I tried to soften the blow of this loss by attributing his dying to his old age. Our daughter accepted this explanation without challenge and is also now more curious about who is old and who is young. Insisting that our other dog, Sprout, who is also in his dotage, is actually a puppy. Acquiescing to her desperate need for proximity, Sprout has reluctantly slept in Issei's bed, has tolerated her attempts to drag him around by the collar, tilts his head with skeptical curiosity when she calls his name from another room. I don't have the stomach to tell her that in many instances, age is irrelevant. I know that she'll understand this soon enough in the heartbreaking way that so many bulletproof backpack-toting children have been made aware. I know that to be alive in this world is to experience certain loss and pain. I also know that my daughter, like many children, seems less afraid of death than grown-ups, perhaps owing to her more recent arrival to this plane, to her spirit's proximity to the before. The day Digby died, the three of us crowded into the vet's office on Pulaski, huddled together on a purple and gray blanket laid out lovingly by the vet tech on the linoleum floor. In the middle of us was Digby. 
his for so many years powerful 75-pound body now frail, his usually loud voice often crying for either food or attention now quiet. What remained was his desire for closeness and touch, his graying head pushing gently into my hand as I rubbed the silky expanse between his nose and forehead. Earlier that morning as I showered, Sarah leaned into the bathroom and said, if we have to put him to sleep, Issei should be there, right? Or I could drop her off with your sister, but I think it'll be important for her to be there to say goodbye to him, right? We ultimately both agreed to take advantage of this privilege denied to so many of a peaceful experience of a death, of the opportunity to be part of a transition from life brought on not by violence, but by the primordial pairing of sickness and old age. In the vet's office under bright fluorescent lights, Issei's little fingers pushed into Digby's big mouth, alternating between apple slices, his favorite, and goldfish crackers, her favorite. <laughs> Dr. Kalada, in his softest voice, told us what to expect each step of the way. I ran my finger across the scar on the inside of D Digby's velvety ear. I breathed in the warm corn tortilla smell of his fur. As the medicine moved through him, I felt his muscles relax as his relief rippled outward in sharp contrast to my own growing grief. I whispered over and over like a mantra, it's okay, it's okay, perhaps more for me than for him. I felt his belly expand and contract slowly once more as he took his final breath and then was forever still. That night, climbing into bed after I'd tucked Issei in, Sarah told me about the conversation she'd had with our daughter in between bedtime books the night before. She told me about how she'd explained to Issei that Digby would likely be leaving this world soon. But where will he go? She wondered. Well, his body will stay here on Earth, but his spirit will travel to the Rainbow Bridge where everyone who loves him and has already died will be there waiting for him. Sarah tells me how casually and with her usual nonchalance, Issei replied, Oh yeah, that's where I was before I was a baby. In this recounting, Sarah and I just stare at each other, eyes wide, mouths agape. Well, what else did she say? I asked Sarah, wanting in on this most coveted glimpse into the after or before life. She just asked me to read her another book. <laughs> Sarah and I are quiet, savoring this morsel of ordinary magic that our daughter gifts us regularly. My own first close encounter with death came at eight years old with the passing of my parents' friend Lauren. His death, like that of so many gay men at the time, was shrouded in shame and secrecy. In life, Lauren was an artist who meticulously cut and painted pastel-colored blocks for me, blocks that Issei now carefully arranges on the floor of her bedroom. Lauren, who'd inspired me to take my first art class at Lil Street Gallery, where I painted a most prescient superhero named Hira, whose power was being half man and half woman. Lauren, whose impossibly bright spirit was somehow missing at the memorial honoring his life, 
I didn't understand then that funerals are for those of us left behind and that the shock of that loss can dim the brightness until we're able to find our way back to it. A month after celebrating my abuela's 100th birthday, I was adrift after receiving a tearful early morning call from my dad. I felt confused. I couldn't comprehend a world without her. I'd spent most of my childhood with her, a tag along for endless hours, bearing witness to her many informal ministries. I was often at her side as she brought comida and gossip to sick or lonely friends. She never seemed to tire. She was always somehow asleep after and awake before me. My abuela, who loved me so much that she'd had me secretly baptized against my parents' wishes so that, as she defended her decision, I wouldn't go to hell. My abuela, who was so committed to the path of heaven for me that she would let me know whenever I hurt myself that God is punishing you. Always for some unknown but certain transgression. My abuela who prayed with and over me every night I slept beside her. My abuela to whom I'd say, bendición, bless me, every time I greeted her, to which she'd reply with the solemn earnestness of a true believer, may God bless you, que Dios te bendiga, mi amor. I still feel her blessings and protection with me today. I still catch glimpses of her watching me from behind the screen door of the house my dad now calls home. Toward the end of her life, I'd call her every Sunday from New York, and I'd ask her, how are you feeling, Wella? To which she would reply, still here, waiting for the angels to come and take me away. <laughs> we always laughed about that, but I also admired her readiness her confidence, which I shared, that it was in fact the angels who were coming for her, loving anchors to welcome her to her new reality just across the Rainbow Bridge. At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, Sarah and I began to build an ancestral altar on and around the upright piano in the living room of our home. Part ofrenda, part shrine, a living reminder of some of the 4,094 ancestors or 12 generations of grandparents who had to live in order for me to be born. We built a sacred garden of photos and candles and offerings, watered regularly with tears of gratitude and grief. We lit a candle each morning, adding and arranging gifts for our newest ancestors. Fragrant cannabis for my Uncle Mark, orange tiger lilies for Aunt Beth, a drawing made by Issei for her pop-pop Moses, which she placed firmly in front of his photo and with a proud whisper said, that's my grandpa. We gave flowers and burned sage and juniper for Elise Mallory and bell hooks and Thich Han. When our dear friends Keith and Dana visit, Issei takes Dana's hand and walks her over to this hallowed ground. Gingerly, she waves her free hand toward the growing wall of mostly serious faces and almost proudly states, these are our ancestors, they're all dead. <laughs> more and more, I find myself working to grow my own capacity to be more like my daughter, who is free in the way that Nina Simone defines it and that she is generally unencumbered by fear, which is honestly a very strong motivator in my life. 
Recently, I had dreamt that I was dying. Not in some distant, hypothetical future time, but actively, right then. In my dream, I was the age I am now. I knew that I was very, very sick. Abuela and Ise were both there with me. I remember feeling surprised to discover that I didn't feel afraid, mostly curious. I knew that I was existing in that moment on the very threshold of life and that I had no choice but to open myself up to wherever my soul was journeying next. I woke up in that liminal space where the dream still feels very real. I found myself gasping for air, clutching the covers, remembering my aliveness. In waking, I was unable to hold on to the calm confidence I just felt on that precipice. Jolted back into a life I didn't feel ready to leave. I was gutted by the thought of not having more time to love and care for Issei. I laid in bed, feeling my heartbeat gradually slow. I talked to my brother Marcus the morning after my dream while cooking arroz con habichuelas, just like Abuela used to make with too much salt and fat. I expressed a deep sadness about the inevitability of death, my own and everyone else's. I also wondered about the literal meaning of this dream. What if it means I'm gonna die sometime soon? Marcus, always wise and comforting, said, well, Hermon's family believes that dreams of our own death are actually good luck, maybe pointing us toward an important ending or a momentous mini death. I liked that interpretation. The night of my birthday, we bring Digby's ashes home. I clutch the surprisingly heavy box to my chest and add it to the piano beside his photo. Together, Issei and I give Abuela a piece of my birthday cake, despite Issei complaining that this is too much cake for someone who can't even eat it. But I know that my Abuela, who once famously ate an entire tray of caramel in one sitting, would have loved a slice of too big cake. Later that evening, Alone, before heading to bed, I return to the altar. I feel the thread of my lineages pulling on my chest, inviting softness, encouraging me to be present. I think about Issei, before she was our child, waiting in the treasury of souls for the right time and people to come and live out her holy assignment. I think about the bright constellation of spirits who connect all sentient beings. I reach out to these ancestors. I thank them for surviving in all of the ways that they were able. I trust that with their help, I can continue to stretch my spirit into a space of mournful celebration or mournibration for whatever time that I'm here. Thank you. This story was produced by Jenna Myers, curated by Lexi Saunders and Julie Ganey, and directed by Eliza Feather. Music was by Jeff Schaller with sound engineering from Michael Benedict. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. To be the first to hear about updates and new episodes, sign up for our podcast listserv at 2ndstory.com backslash podcast, or subscribe to the Second Story podcast on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. 
Second story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the Arts Work Fund, Walter Foundation, MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Paul M. Angel Family Foundation, Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, James Lupo, Jessica Wetmore, Hannah and George Stowe, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.